Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on the afternoon of Saturday, April 29th, 2023. I'm Tony O'Brien of Lehigh University. Joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard of Columbia University. How are you today, Glenn? Great. How are you? Doing well. It's kind of a chilly, rainy afternoon in uh, Lehigh Valley, but uh, things are going well. Something like the economy, maybe. Uh, you're right. Yeah. A little overcast. Could go one yeah. way, could go the yeah. other. So, Glenn, um, I thought maybe we could start with the debate over the debt limit. So, a little bit of background that, of course, whenever the federal government spends more than it takes in taxes and other revenue, which is most years, the Treasury is obliged to borrow the difference by issuing treasury bonds. And over the years, they've done a lot of that. And each year, as more bonds get added to the pile, the value of uh, federal government debt, often called the national debt, goes up. And since 1917, Congress has put a limit on how much debt the treasury can issue. And it periodically raises that limit Sometimes it's done without much comment. Other times it involves a bit of a political struggle, which is the situation that we're in now. So um, the, uh, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives last week under Speaker Kevin McCarthy passed a bill that would raise the debt limit, but also would put some restraints on the growth of uh, federal spending. So at this point, uh, there is a tussle as to whether or not uh, or how the democratically controlled Senate and uh, President Biden will respond to that. So what's your take on this? Uh, where do you think we are? Where do you think we're going to go? Well, it's a super interesting question, Tony. I, I think there's some interesting political economy elements to this and also things that um, occur to us all when we teach uh, principles. In terms of the political economy, you know, as you said, Congress has uh, mandated the idea of a debt ceiling uh, since the uh, First World War in terms of seeking uh, reapproval. And normally it's a routine matter. Occasionally it's not. 2011 comes to mind and, and obviously today uh, clearly, the endpoint answer is obvious. We shouldn't default on the national debt. I mean, that that's, should be simple. Uh, U.S. Treasury securities are the default risk-free securities. Now, some argue, well, this is leverage. But it's not really leverage if you know what the endpoint is. If the endpoint is we don't default, then there's not, there's not a lot of leverage. What worries me a little is some talk that says, well, so what's the harm of default? If we're on an unsustainable fiscal trajectory anyway, we might as well have a conversation. But that's a bit like saying, uh, I have cancer, a long-term disease, so why don't I induce a heart attack now so that we can talk about it? Not terribly, uh, not terribly smart. What it could, though, do, I think, is maybe tee up a discussion that says, why don't we replace this theater with a situation in which we do have clean debt ceiling increases, but we have a budget process that actually forces a discussion of spending. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, one country that provides uh, a great example of that is Sweden. 
that has clear budget targets and an independent fiscal policy council that criticizes the government if they don't meet the targets and the government has to respond. So there's simple things like that that I think would, would improve the situation uh, a lot. In terms of our teaching, I think it's a really good time to remind students that the first order fiscal primitive really is spending. You know, once, once you choose spending, taxes, borrowing, they're just ways to pay for it. So talking about spending, how it's evolved, what is our trajectory of spending and of deficits and debt uh, is interesting. Also, what are the effects of deficits? You know, in the book, we talk about debates over crowding out, whether in a large open economy like the US, that's really so large, or whether it's really a story about future tax burdens and what that does to the country. But I do think this is going to get uglier before it gets uh, better. I'd love to say I have 100% confidence in all our political leaders, but I'd be uh, lying if I said that. <laughs> yeah, you, you make excellent points there. I mean, maybe we can just spend a minute or two talking about something which I think maybe we talked about before, I'm not sure. But a couple of months ago, the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, um, released a forecast and they periodically forecast what they think is gonna happen over the next 10 years. And uh, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. I mean, they, they have to forecast things like GDP and so on in order to uh, figure out what's likely to happen. And um, so their forecast of debt is currently it's around 98% of GDP. And often I think it's worth mentioning to students that we kind of scale these things by GDP. It gives us a better feel than the, the absolute number. The absolute number right now is $31.4 trillion worth of debt. If you, if you compare that to GDP, you get a little bit better feel for how large it is and how it's changed over time. And that 98% is as high as it's been since the mid 1940s when the federal government took on a lot of debt to fight World War II. And after that, um, that debt as a, as a fraction of GDP began to go down because even though debt was still increasing most years after World War II, but the economy was growing more quickly. So debt dwindled as a fraction of the economy. But this time, the, um, the CBO uh, is forecasting that it's going to rise. And so it's like 98% now. They think it may rise to 118% of GDP by 2033, 10 years from now, and up to 198% of GDP by 2053. So that would be about twice as large as it's, as it's been in the history of the country. Um, and what's driving that, the, the, the CBO forecast that spending, which has been running the last 50 years at about 21% of GDP, is going to go up to about 25%. And a lot of that is driven by Social Security as the population ages, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits, and interest on the debt. Because of course, the larger the debt is, the more interest the federal government has to pay on those bonds. So spending is going up to about 25% of GDP, but taxes, they estimate are only going to go up about 18%. So there's gonna be a 7% 
7% of GDP gap there between what we're spending and what we're paying in taxes if um, present trends continue. So that's a point that I think is interesting in class that you can talk about with students and say, well, what, what sort of things could we do? What, what, what do you think we could do? And what do you think we probably will do to keep the debt from rising to twice the level of GDP, which would be an undesirable result in a number of respects? What's interesting, Tony, if I could follow up on what you were saying, um, if you ask students, what could you do to write that ship? They probably point to categories of spending that are obvious in the mind's eye, but not actually terribly large as a fraction of government spending. So if you look at many discretionary spending items that students think about, public goods or infrastructure, those are important. They're large numbers, but not relative to GDP. The largest components of spending uh, our defense, which if anything is going to have to rise, defense experts tell us, uh, over the next decade or so, and social spending on programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. So spending adjustments really will be about social spending adjustments. Uh, likewise, on taxes, it may be attractive to say, well, we could just fix this by raising taxes only on the well-to-do. You may want to do that but the math doesn't work in terms of the gap that you said. So we really have, it's a good exercise for pointing out to students, whether it's on the tax side or the spending side, where the money really is. Yeah, those, those are excellent points. And it, it seems as if we're gonna face some tough choices because as you mentioned, I mean, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, increases in, in spending uh, for veterans. Those are all programs that are very difficult to even rein in, not necessarily to cut, but to sort of slow the, the growth of, of spending. You can sort of say um, a little bit of I told you so. I think a lot of economists, you know, 10 or, or 20 or more years ago were saying, well, before the baby boomers retire, uh, we need to think about what we can do with some of these programs, uh, Social Security, Medicare in particular. But of course, at this point, the baby boomers have retired and it's always easier if you um, uh, change things soon enough that people can plan. I mean, you can't really tell someone who's on the verge of retirement, well, you know, you're, you're not gonna get the payments that we said you were gonna get. It's easier if retirement is 30 years off or something like that. So we have some, some tough choices and as you mentioned, also with respect to taxes that, um, you know, if we move taxes significantly out of the range that they've been in of that 17, 18%, uh, you know, there could be disincentives for savings, investment and work and so on that could, as we talk about in the text, potentially slow down the rate of growth of the economy, which then, you know, make, makes some of these matters worse because then it feeds back to lower tax revenues and sometimes, higher rates of social spending. So it's clearly um, going to be a, um, uh, a tough to close that gap because it's gotten so large between projected spending and, um, and projected tax revenues. And on top of all this, you know, you, there are two wild cards. And you've mentioned one already, the fact that interest rates are now much higher than they had been in much of the post-global financial crisis period is clearly a wild card in the sense that if rates were to persist at this level or even rise, uh, the federal budget outlook, 
is much worse than what the Congressional Budget Office projected in their last report. A positive potentially uh, outlook shifter would be for productivity growth from the use of generative AI as a new general purpose technology that could accelerate productivity growth. So as always, whether it's the CBO, whether it's us in the book or all of us teaching, we have to be a little humble. We don't know the answer, but I think we can point students to the questions they need to ask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there. It's obviously difficult to make these projections. I mean, there have been a few rays of sunshine. Medicare spending has not been increasing as rapidly as had been projected. And you know, if you if some optimists think that um, improvements in, in in pharmaceuticals, for instance, there's talk of a uh, much more effective flu vaccine, and Flu, of course, particularly affects older people who are on Medicare and who may be hospitalized and so on. So if that were to, to work, or some people are optimistic that there may be pharmaceutical help on the way for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, and that also is a big chunk of the Medicare budget. So yeah, it is worth reminding students that you know we, we put these numbers down. We say it's 98% of uh, debt is 98% of GDP now, it's going to be 198% in 30 years, but those are just forecasts and they could be uh, overtaken by events in a number of different ways. So um, speaking of forecasts, I thought maybe we could have a look at something we've talked a lot about, but since this is most likely our last um, podcast of this academic year, maybe we can uh, hazard uh, uh, a forecast of what's likely to happen to the economy, say, in the fall or by the end of the year. And of course, if our forecasts turn out to be correct, we'll, we'll take a victory lap next fall about how, how, how brilliant we were. If they're wrong, then of course, we just won't mention it again. <laughs> so uh, we talked before about the possibility that we could have a so-called soft landing, that uh, we could see inflation come back down to near at least the Fed's target of 2% without having a recession, or at least with having only a very mild recession. Could have a hard landing in which inflation comes down, but only because we have a, a severe recession. I think we talked a little bit about um, the no landing possibility, which is we sort of go along as we are now with inflation well above target, but with um, the economy not expanding, or we even sort of the, the nightmare scenario would be stagflation where we do have a recession, but even that doesn't bring the inflation rate back down to the 2% target that the Fed is aiming for. So what do you think as you, as you look forward to where we're likely to be by the end of 2023, where do you think, where do you think we'll be? Well, I think we will see a recession, whether it's uh, a hard landing, meaning a deeper recession that doesn't last as long, or a softer landing, maybe a slight recession that lasts a while. I, I think we have to see it if the Fed really is serious about 2% inflation. And, and I say that using just simple arithmetic. So if the Fed wants 2% inflation, uh, even if you thought we'd had real growth, even let's say of 2%, that would be nominal GDP growth of 4%. We're growing faster than that and have been. And so we are going to have to decelerate. And in fact, to decelerate over a year toward that 4% nominal GDP number, 
would require almost no growth uh, in real growth uh, in the economy for an extended period of time or a recession. So I think if we're if the Fed is serious about a two percent uh, inflation target in the near term, a recession is going to baked in the cake. Uh, they will have to continue a monetary policy that delivers that. Now, if the Fed thinks otherwise and is willing to tolerate a rate of inflation somewhat higher, that could be a different outcome. Of course, that raises the question then of what happens to the public's expectations about inflation. So I, I know that um, I need to lose a few pounds at the end of spring, and I could hope that it will happen naturally just because seminar cookies go away and things like that. But chances are I'm actually going to have to take action, and, and chances are the Fed will too. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I think that that is a very likely outcome. I mean, it looks like inflation has remained stubbornly high. There are, of course, a very, uh, there's a, a variety of different measures. And we talked about in the book, um, you can measure inflation by the change in the consumer price index. Maybe you just want to look at core inflation, meaning you want to take out um, uh, energy prices and food prices, or you can look at what is the Fed's preferred measure, the personal consumption expenditures price index, or the core version of that. Um, some people look closely at wages, and there's actually a, um, a, uh, a measure of wages that people have been focusing on more than they did. And that's something called the employment cost index. Because um, in the book, we talk about average hourly earnings, which basically just takes everybody's job and divides by the number of hours and looks at that as an indication of how wages are increasing. But that can be affected by so-called composition effects. I mean, for instance, if there's a lot of layoffs in tech and some of those people are highly paid and they drop out of the number, then it may seem as if wages not increasing as quickly, but the average person is actually seeing higher wage increases. The employment cost index is interesting because it corrects for those what are called composition effects, saying, you know, let's let's abstract from the fact that some of the high-paid jobs are are not uh, are, are people have lost higher-paid jobs and and there's been expansion of lower paid jobs. The bottom line seems to be, however you look at it, it's difficult to make an argument that inflation has dropped below 4%. Seems like it's four to 5%. So then as you say, it's a question of does the Fed, do they stick to their guns? And do they say, well, we said we'd get it back to 2% and we will get it back to 2%. And given that a lot of the, the, the things that we thought would naturally bring it down is, you know, this, the supply chain problems have largely been fixed. And we had this big surge in spending as a result of um, some of the government spending programs uh, a, a year or two ago. And um, a lot of that has already gone through the economy. And I, I think it's, as Chairman Powell has pointed out, goods inflation has come down a lot, but service inflation has remained stubbornly high. So it's an interesting question. My guess is that they will feel obliged to stick to their guns. And I guess people are expecting at least one more increase in the target for the federal funds rate. But if inflation continues to be the four to 5% range, 
then it makes you think that they'd have to have further increases in interest rates. And it's hard to see us managing to avoid a significant recession if interest rates continue to go up. I think that's right. And, and keep in mind, there's another wild card here from a potential credit crunch surrounding the banking difficulties that we've talked about on, on previous podcasts. Banks uh, are special in some senses in local economies in lending to uh, small and mid-sized companies, the lending to local commercial real estate projects. To the extent that banks cut back on those very sharply, that only increases the likelihood of a recession. The flip side of that for inflation for the Fed may mean that the Fed doesn't need as many future turns in the federal funds rate to achieve a much tighter policy. But it, this is clearly going to be something to watch for the Fed, for local business people, for all of us looking to, you know, where to put our, our personal savings. It's, it's a big deal. Yeah, it looks as if I haven't um, checked uh, in the few minutes since we began recording, but it seems as if that the FDIC was likely to seize First Republic Bank, which is a, a bank located in San Francisco. Uh, that would be uh, the third of the sort of failures of, of substantial banks and then uh, a, a attempt to sell it off. It's not clear whether uh, they would um, end up um, insuring deposits that were above the FDIC's $250,000 limit. We talked about that before, that you know, there's a lot of discussion. Will, there, um, uh, will they again say, well, this would be systemic risk, and so we'll have to step in and backstop those, uh, even if someone has 2 or $3 million or $20 million in a First Republic Bank, uh, they, will, um, they will have the ability to withdraw those funds on Monday morning when, when the bank reopens. So you're right. I mean, we haven't necessarily yet seen what this credit crunch might be, particularly if smaller banks, as you said, community banks lose funds, and you have local businesses that have a relationship with that bank but may not have one with a, a national bank that may have branches in that area. Can they find a replacement for that funding to carry their inventories and meet their payrolls and the other, the other short-term funding needs that most businesses have. So you're right that in effect, when the Fed is raising um, the target for the federal funds rate, it's trying to bring about a reduction in credit. And we've seen some of that in the, in the most recent uh, real GDP numbers. We saw a decline in, in spending on residential construction, fewer houses being built, um, some decline in equipment, purchases. But in, in effect, um, if banks pull back from lending, that is another way in which, in fact, the, the economy might slow down. Um, so it's possible that we do get additional slowing in inflation uh, beyond what we've seen so far without the Fed having to increase more than this one increase that seems like it's um, pretty much cooked in at this point. Um, so we'll have to see. We'll have to revisit this in the fall. As I say, if it turns out that we were on the nose, then uh, uh, then we'll say we really were quite brilliant about this. But otherwise, we'll just pretend we didn't say anything. <laughs> Glenn, let's turn to a different subject, one that is um, more of a micro and international subject. And that is 
the CHIPS Act, as it's popularly called, and that was an act Congress passed last year. And it was meant to subsidize the production of semiconductors, computer chips in the United States. And partly that's a reaction to some of the problems we saw during the pandemic when uh, there were shortages of chips and uh, going to automobiles and other products. And also uh, because of um, political concerns that uh, one of the more important, in fact, the, the one factory in the world that produces state-of-the-art chips is in Taiwan. And people are concerned that perhaps um, if China were to invade, or even if there were some uh, natural disaster, an earthquake or something that took that uh, one factory in Taiwan offline, if there could be ramifications for the US economy. So do you think the, the, the CHIPS Act is a good way to deal with this? Uh, is it needed? Uh, and what do you think the effects will be? Well, the national security question that motivated in part the CHIPS Act is, is a real one. And you and I are economists, at least I, I can't say whether that's a particularly good idea or not. But looking at it, it raises uh, important trade dynamic. We're already seeing um, concerns by the European Union, for example, of excessive US subsidies. Uh, if we were to step back and say, how would we fix this problem as economists? We might subsidize basic research in chips a lot more than we do today. And we might want to take a hard look at any barriers we have to chip manufacturing in the United States. Are there things in the regulatory structure or the tax structure that make that difficult? After that inventory and after those basic subsidies, we could then think about whether we need uh, whether we need more. I worry that um, much of the money we'll spend will be inframarginal. That is, it'll reward existing chips companies, which is partly why they're so excited about it, but not particularly help all of us as, as consumers. But, but we'll see. It's certainly a big deal. It's certainly likely to improve U.S. investment as well as deepen trade frictions with Europe. I don't know. What do you think? Yes, I think you're right. I mean, one thing that maybe we should be more concerned about as a policy issue is what has been um, unraveling might be too strong a term, but at least fraying of the uh, World Trade Organization uh, framework that has stood us really in good stead. I mean, it's if you compare the volume of trade today compared to what it was back when um, predecessor of the WTO was formed, uh, back in the 1940s, it, it's increased tremendously. And that's been a boon to the United States that we have a lot of products um, that are produced more cheaply or that we would have difficulty producing within the United States. But some of the steps we've been taking, even though viewed in isolation, you could say um, makes sense. And this would be one. Uh, the World Trade Organization ordinarily, uh, our obligations there is that we're not really supposed to be subsidizing production. And we have, I think, rightly, we, the United States, have rightly objected to that when other countries have done it. Um, now, there is a, a national security loophole in that. Um, so it really comes down to the question of, is this truly a national security issue? Um, but I think we do have to be aware that we don't want to get into a situation where de facto the WTO agreement becomes kind of a dead letter and not only we, but also 
Europe and Japan and China sort of say, okay, well, it's it, it's back to every country for itself because uh, we would lose quite a lot if that were to happen in terms of uh, the standard of living in the United States. Great, Glenn. I think that we've had a good discussion there and we've given some food for thought for instructors and students as they think about what's been going on in the banking and financial system. So we wanna thank everybody for joining us again for this podcast. And if you want to, you can go to hubbardobrieneconomics.com, hubbardobrieneconomics, all one word, .com. And you can see our blog where we regularly um, put updates about what's been happening in the economy. So thank you very much again for listening to us and we'll see you next time.